Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. As we hear more stories of e-bike speeding and accidents, is it time to enforce slower speeds in Metro Vancouver? Plus, from wildfires to housing to infrastructure, we look at Premier David Eby's visit to Ottawa and what dollar commitments he hopes to return home with. And slinging ink. Tattoo parlors have been banned in Langley Township since the late 1980s. Why has council decided to reverse the ban now? And the first ever Jazz Joe Hall Show staff meeting will occur live on the air. We have grievances, folks, and we won't hold Back. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now let's get to our top story during the last election. We spent a lot of time talking about the impact of random crime and vandalism uh, we were seeing in, in our city, particularly in neighborhoods like Chinatown. In February last year, the Vancouver Chinatown BIA reported half of its annual budget was being spent on security, with $240,000 uh, being spent on security for 2021 alone. Now, in May, the community re- uh, received uh, $2.2 million in provincial funds to reshape and revitalize its shops, streets, decor, and infrastructure. Now, even though greater attention is being paid by authorities and more police officers are being hired, are things better? Well, joining me now is Stephanie Kayser. She's Operations Director for Delina uh, Cafe, uh, located on Main Street. Uh, Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Good to be with you. Uh, walk me through, what are you seeing uh, in and around um, your operation, which, uh, as I said, is located on Main Street? Well, listen, property crime obviously has always been there. Um, you know, what we are noticing recently is kind of an uptick i feel in kind of violent encounters Hmm. um you know i had a unfortunate situation a few weeks ago where a knife was used um, with one of my baristas he's fine Uh, there was no injuries um we were able to quickly get the individual out of the store um you know we've had three windows smashed and two break-ins to our loading dock so and and i want to kind of preface this by saying i'm in a very privileged situation i have landlord support Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been able to do a number of security upgrades to our store. Um, and we certainly appreciate, I don't want, you know, to sound like we're not supported. We are a hundred percent supported by the city, um, by the BIA, you know, we're seeing a lot of increased presence. Um, I'm just, you know, wanting to draw kind of positive attention to Chinatown just try to keep the lights on and kind of, you know, signal to retailers that we need to kind of try to stay and mm-hmm. try to, you know, commercial vacancies are difficult and, you know, we need to kind of keep the lights on and, and, and get some good traffic flow and tourism and back into Chinatown. It's such a vibrant and cool city. You know, I was born and raised here and, you know, we have a lot of pride and, and uh, the landlords that own the building and Delina were committed to being here and we want to be a positive and inclusive space in the city. But it's tough. It's, yeah. it's tough right now. Yeah, I mean, I hear that from a lot of small business owners. It's, it, they want to stay in the neighborhood. Uh, they're entrepreneurs. They work hard, long hours, uh, and they're fully committed to their business. But it's these external factors that make it difficult at times. And so I want to confirm with some of the things that you've had to go through. Um, in one month, you've seen two B&Es uh, through the loading dock, uh, two uh, broken windows, uh, your front door was broken, and as you say, one of your staff members was threatened with a knife, right? Is that That's right? pretty close. So you can add one more broken window. We have three total. Oh, jeez. 
Yeah. Three broken windows. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, I understand that y- you've been able to add, a, like your, or the plan is to add some film on the glass so the windows won't break, or at least would be more difficult to break? Exactly, yeah. We've added that protective film that um, kind of holds on to the shatter better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of delays access and enables, um, you know, police to get here uh, quick enough to avoid an entry. Um, we've also installed all new cameras all around the building. Um, you know, my, the safety of my staff and guests is obviously my number one priority, and we're we're ready to do anything it takes to kind of hold our ground and, and make it safe, and you know, be able to just get back to serving coffee and muffins, which is what we're good at. Yeah, and you you've uh, put in rolling shutters as well, just to confirm. Or we're, we're, we've we're considering received it. A, we've received a quote. Um, we're looking into it. It obviously it's a huge expense. Yeah. Um, but we did install a panic button so that this, the staff have um, a little more peace of mind that they can get quick assistance when needed. Yeah. You know, it, 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 there's no sort of magic wand here that's going to fix this. You know, people call this show and they always say greater enforcement, more police, and I, don't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Others have said we've got to get our issue in and around fentanyl, mental health and addiction, those types of things. What would you like to see more of? I mean, it, maybe it's a little of both, I don't know. But for small business people like yourself who are, you know, like I said, you're very committed, long hours, people don't realize how difficult it is at times to be an entrepreneur and to be responsible for paychecks every two weeks plus run a business all those types of things what would you like to see how how can you be helped well i don't pretend to be an expert um it's obviously a very complicated issue Mm -hmm. um i think from my perspective you know commercial vacancies are tough um when you look around a block and there's two storefronts that have been empty for three four years i mean that obviously kind of hurts um the block um, you know, I think, yeah, again, I, I don't want to, you know, get political. I think that we're doing a lot. I think the city's doing a lot. And yeah. I am appreciative that the focus is on Chinatown and the downtown east side and Gastown. And I think as a community, we just need to rally and support each other. And, you know, when things happen, we kind of come together. And, um, you know, I have good support services for my staff. You know, bathrooms are an issue. Let's be honest, like, it's hard. Like we don't want to say no to people using the washroom. Um, you know, it's a human right. And, and so that puts a lot of pressure on businesses to kind of monitor and worry about safety and, and all those things. And so, you know, I think the more bathrooms we have in these, you know, in the cities for the public, that that would take pressure off a little bit, you know, but beyond that, I don't really have any, yeah, like you said, any magic fix. Yeah. Is it scaring away customers in your mind or are you still able, do you solve regulars? And what I, what I mean by that is just, you know, as you say, there's a couple of business that may not be open. They see these types of things. People may not feel safe occasionally. Um, has Do you still have your regulars or are you still, or, or is there a, a change in regards to your, your regulars not coming? Well, business is down, you know, and the economy plays a part in that, you know, but we, we used to see, you know, 450 people a day on average coming through our particular store. Mm-hmm. And now it, it's between 200 and 250. So, you know, there, there is a difference there. I think, I mean, operating hours were not open past five o'clock because we just don't feel that it's worth it, that it's safe. You know, again, keeping my staff safe is my number one priority. So we would like to be open later. You know, last summer we were open till nine o'clock on the patio, but that just wasn't an option for us this year. Hmm. And that's because the foot counts just down and dropped. Yeah, no, just because we we just feel running a tighter operation where we close early and we have a lot of bodies working. You know, we used to do 
you know, two people working in the store alone until eight o'clock. And that's just not, you know, a safe thing to do at the moment. So we've adjusted. Wow. Um, and when did this start in your mind? Was I mean, has this just been getting worse even after the COVID here? I'm just trying to get a sense of, I mean, I, I can understand some of the things having to shut down during COVID, but this has actually gotten worse after COVID. Unfortunately, it has. And again, Jazz, I'm not an expert. Like, yeah. I really don't want to speak out of turn. I think that the substances that are out there now are a lot more toxic and, and we're seeing, you know, individuals going through a lot more pain physically and mentally. And, and you know, things have changed uh, from my perspective in the last year. Like I said, I'm born and raised here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did see a bit of a recovery after COVID and then kind of a downturn so, yeah, that's the mood on the streets. I think it's it's tough, you know, yeah. tough for everyone. Yeah, well, I, all I can say is please hang in there. Uh, we need more small business uh, leaders like yourself uh, who are fighting the good fight at the street level. And fingers crossed things do get better. Really appreciate your time today, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz. And I'll just say to everyone, come down. Come down to Chinatown and get some good, you know, food and drinks and come enjoy the city. You know, we miss everyone. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, <laughs> Stephanie. Appreciate it. Now, the Jazz Joe Hall Show continues on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Joining me now is our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson, producer Stephen Chang, and technical producer Ryan Lee Hall. Of course, they're all contributors to this show. Welcome, guys. Oh, Jazz. Hello, Ryan. Oh, boy. Hello, Jerry. I'm concerned by the direction of the segment is going. <laughs> Don't Judging be. by the theme song here, Ex- oh, no. Exactly. Now, relationships that you have with your coworkers are some of the most important and complicated at times, as you all know, uh, but they have a huge impact on your life. So I thought it was important that we had a staff meeting uh, regarding an issue that came up, I think it was last week. It now, was. as you all know, uh, Rob Fay, uh, who is uh, one of our new weekend hosts, uh, was filling in, I do believe, for Jill Bennett. Mm-hmm. And he sits about 30 feet from Stephen Chang's desk. About 30 feet. I was good measuring the other day. 30 feet. And Stephen was just eating some potato chips. And Rob goes, man, that guy's a loud chewer. <laughs> right? So he just made an observation, kind of blow it, blow his breath a little bit. He didn't say it too loud. And Ben Dooley, the producer for Jill's show, Right away, and he's a complete statesman, let's be admitted. He never says negative things about anybody. He's a complete statesman, goes, yeah, for sure. He just piped in, like he just piled on right, right away. And then you, Jerry, right directly across from me. <laughs> I said, I was diplomatic because I said, it's like, Stephen, we love you. And it's clear you're like enjoying your food. And I love that. But yeah, you do chew really, 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 really loud. Ah, right. It okay. was, now, now, Ryan, uh, I understand uh, you have the sound from. Steven's. Oh, we have the sample. Yeah, I could, did record Stephen chewing. Could you play that for, for us? For sure. Oh, God. Now, imagine sitting next to that every day. And him chewing away uh, on his afternoon potato chips. Now, you sit right behind Stephen, probably about six, eight feet away. Yeah, I would say so, about six to eight feet. And I recorded that from my desk. So, <laughs> from that And he was distance. facing the other way, too. So, I mean. <laughs> now, would you say he's a loud chewer? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Like, uh, I've sit, noticed it. You've noticed it. Okay. Now, you, I, was, uh, I sit about six feet away, directly across from Stephen. And I've, seen, I've heard him many a time. And I said, I've never said anything. Because I don't want to be perceived as rude or I'm picking on Stephen. Touchy. Or... So I've said nothing. 
Stephen, do you have anything to say in regards to this chewing that we all, based on a very observation made by Rob, just one day out Uh of the blue, Uh and do you have anything to say to us in regards Uh to this, um, how do I say this delicately, annoying habit? Okay, first of all, when I applied for this job, I didn't sign up for uh, being publicly persecuted on air. Uh, but I, I guess I can't get away from that now. Second of all, I just want to eat my chips. Yes. <laughs> and no, not just the Jazz, to all of you, to this entire team, okay? Why can't you're, I just enjoy his bag of chips? We're not saying that, but you're allowed to. I'll tell you another time. We had a staff meeting one day late in the uh, in the morning. Oh, so this incident. Yes. And uh, so it was just around, right before lunch. He brings over his lunch with him. I think he had leftovers or whatever. It was fried chicken. chicken. You remember it's fried chicken. chicken. Yeah, yeah. And so he's eating in our meeting, and it's the same thing. And so how does a guy make chicken loud when he's chewing? <laughs> it's dead. It's, it's the loudest dead. fried chicken I've no, ever heard. Strong teeth. And I, once again, I was about to say something. I said, no, no, no. You're gonna, they're going to know you're picking on poor Steven. And I said nothing. But you brought it up again later, and I knew the meeting you were referring See, to. Same, yeah, 100%. <laughs> do you guys remember the, do you remember the meeting? 100%. 100%. So, Stephen, we got to fix this. Like, is this going to continue this loud, loud chewing? We really Do they make quiet the, chips? Yeah. <laughs> okay, what do you want me to do? Okay, if I'm having lunch, do you want me to just eat rice? Rice and mashed potatoes, pudding. Don't just, slurp just it, though. Or are you afraid I'm going to make noise chewing rice as well? It's going to be that loud. I mean, you probably will. There's a staff lunchroom. Have you thought of that? <laughs> nobody, nobody uses, nobody the staff uses it. Room. But have you thought it about using one of the, the halls? That's edit an isolation corner. That's an isolation corner. I, if I go there, I'm going to feel even more lonely. I already feel lonely when I'm working with but you listen, guys. This is, this is Rob Faye. Rob Faye is the nicest guy in the world. And for him, 30 feet away, go, that dude's a loud chewer. He's got misophonia. Like, do you think that it would be a reasonable accommodation to make Stephen eat in a soundproof room? Yeah. Should I just go to the studio to eat lunch? Is that what you want? I'm yes. saying there's a lunchroom. That's where you can have lunch. That's all. But, I mean, it's actually it's very interesting. Rob said that. Rob told me that he has stopped going to movie theaters. Mm-hmm. It's been like 12 years. Yeah, it's a lot of. Because he can't stand. Isolated here, crunching. Yeah. Isolated crunching. So it is a condition some people yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And want more people than you think. There's a whole subreddit yeah. about it. So what I'm saying here is, Stephen, forget about your immediate colleagues here in this show. Uh, you don't want to trigger Rob. Either. <laughs> That's the other reason. So I think perhaps uh, another brand of chips maybe you could try that. i think that you know <laughs> what i mean another brand okay another brand. you love or, kettle chips those are literally categorically stephen chang the crunchiest chips you could yeah. eat I mean, and if you really 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 need chips let us know we'll all walk out of the room and we'll make the sacrifice and you can sit in the, in the newsroom by yourself and eat your chips. So you're telling me one day I'm just going to come to work and see all of you protesting outside the building for it's, my loud chewing. We just don't want to send a staff memo to it's management actually, that something happens. I mean, Chaz, he was about to get a Dairy Queen Blizzard today and I said, dude, if you do, don't get the Oreos because he's going to soon be crunching <laughs> on the Oreo Blizzard. It's, it's a real issue, Steve. I, I tell you, it really is. It's just like a ball peeing hammer to the head. Slowly and slowly every day. And I've said nothing. I have said nothing throughout all of this. And you remember that. It's like there's gravel in the bag of chips. It is insane. Anyway. All right, folks. Stephen, thank you for putting up with us. But we had to have this conversation. This isn't over. This This isn't over. No, it's not. All right, folks. I want to hear from you. What are your coworkers' most annoying habits? Call us on the bus line, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Or email me, jazz at cknw.com. All right, Stick around, folks. The Daily Debrief is next.
Shut it off, Ryan. Joining me now to talk a little bit, uh, not about his co-workers, but talk about David Eby, Premier David Eby, and Sixers with Cabinet Ministers heading to Ottawa today to discuss a variety of issues with Prime Minister Trudeau and other ministers. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. I have the best co-workers, Jazz. You may know some of them. Keith Baldry, case in point. And there could, like, I can't think of one negative thing about working with Keith Baldry. And the rest of the press gallery, they are the people that are easiest to get along with, Jazz, that oh, you yeah. can ever imagine. <laughs> They're not sensitive media types. In fact, feel, no, free, feel free after this interview to call our buzz line, 604-331-2899, <laughs> and just call yourself Tom from Victoria and tell yeah, yeah, your yeah. story. <laughs> Richard, Richard Zed from Victoria. Yeah, Richard, that's right. Richard from Nanaimo. Let's do it again. All right, well, let's talk about uh, David from Vancouver. In this case, Premier David Eby and six of his cabinet ministers visiting Ottawa for two days. Uh, Walk me through what kind of things you think they're going to be talking about with the prime minister and uh, the variety of other ministers. Yeah, so like all these meetings, there's the formal agenda, then there are all the issues that the premier wants to talk about off that agenda. So the formal agenda is about uh, green jobs uh, and the federal government's climate strategy and working with British Columbia uh, to continue to grow that job sector uh, and encourage growth in the clean tech sector. The other part of it is housing, uh, working with the federal government uh, to get more money for British Columbia around housing, talk about innovative ways that both levels of government can invest in housing and make it easier uh, to build uh, purpose-built rentals, as well as uh, you know this idea of missing middle and, and what that looks like across British Columbia. Hmm. Uh, then there's the issue about uh, fire, uh, wildfire support and relief uh, communities in the Shuswap and Kelowna area uh, destroyed by fire. Uh, the province wants to ensure that Ottawa is there at the table to support that. Hmm. Then there are the issues off agenda. Nikki Sharma, the attorney general, is working with the Senate to try to get bail reform legislation passed through the Senate as quickly as possible. And there's also the issue that Premier Eby raised on Friday about the fact that he doesn't believe he's getting all the information he needs around CSIS briefings when it comes to the relationship between Canada and India and what's happening with the current investigation. Uh, And all of that is... um, going to be a very contentious issue considering EB has been very critical of the Prime Minister and the federal government about how little information he believes he has into that issue. I guess let's start with the latter issue for the moment because we did have protests today in, in Vancouver in regards to um, Khalistan and, and the Indian consulate and of course uh, the killing of Hadeep Singh Nijar uh, in, in, in Surrey. Uh, does the, would the Premier be, be given this information? If this is of national security, I'm not saying the Premier shouldn't have some of this information, but would you want to be sharing all of the information because this stuff cannot be made public in regards to what intelligence they receive beyond broad comments generally made in the media, but that's about it. Do you really think they'd be providing anything extra for the Premier in this? The Premier would like to see information that allows him to keep British Columbians safe. And he believes the investigation into the murder of Hardeep Singh Nijar is at the point where he needs more information to understand the situation and whether British Columbians should be worried about their safety. And one of the things that EB has been advocating for is reconsidering the way in which the legislation works. Right now, CSIS is extremely limited in what information they can share. EB basically said the only information that he has been given 
is information that is largely publicly available already. Mm -hmm. And he would like to see a separate level of security clearance, considering he is a premier and that he wants to have the proper information to protect British Columbians the best he can. So it's a compelling argument. I'm not sure the prime minister wants to open that can of worms when it comes to revisiting CSIS legislation. There are numerous issues around foreign interference, uh, you know, here in this case around a murder invest an assassination investigation in Surrey connected to India. There's issues around uh, foreign interference in elections from China. You know, this is if when you open this legislation, you open yourself up for a lot of criticism. But Evie is going to continue to hit at this point. This is an issue that's important to him. Yeah. And he wants to make sure that he gets this right information the best he can from from CSIS through the prime minister's office. Yeah, I mean, I was hearing that from MPs last year. CSIS did come in and brief some of our, our BC MPs last year. But the general complaint was it's all very generic, broad information that does not give us specifics. Uh, and my argument would be you don't want too much of this information going to MPs unless they're part of a specific committee. But that's an ongoing issue. It'll be interesting to see what transpired from that. But let's focus on a broader issue that impacts all British Columbians, and that's housing. What more can the federal government provide uh, in regards to, to the to BC and for cities specifically in regards to really building supply in, in our province? The big ask from BC continues to be to tie housing funding to immigration. So mm. right now, the way largely money from Ottawa to the provinces works is it's based on population. BC makes up about 12% of the Canadian population and largely receives about 12% of the funding coming from Ottawa. But we also get somewhere between 17 and 20% of the new immigrants. And that number continues to go up as immigration drives through British Columbia. And BC believes that they need their fair share, that there needs to be more support based on the immigration numbers mm -hmm. to support housing. So that's just one piece. There's also the issue around uh, what does it look like in terms of partnerships? What does it look like in terms of developing technology to build certain homes? The Premier spoke a little bit about his trip to Asia and what he learned, especially when he was in Tokyo, uh, and sharing some of that information with the federal government uh, to find out how they can be the most effective partners, not just money, but obviously money is the big driver here. Hmm. Uh, in regards to the fire support, uh, wildfire support, is, is that a question of more... Uh, permanent funding for year-round focus around wildfires, so doing some of the work uh, in, in the January and February, way before wildfire season, is it actually funding a more permanent wildfire service? That's largely going to be driven out of the BC budget. Mm -hmm. You know, clearly the province would always like to have more money, but there um, are questions about whether the federal government needs to, in essence, establish its own permanent support for wildfires and floods and other natural disasters considering we're seeing them more frequently and how does that apply to jurisdictions like British Columbia uh, and other provinces like in Alberta and the Atlantic provinces where they're also seeing a sudden increase in the impacts of um, these sort of weather events but a lot of this also stems to how quickly the federal government can come to the table uh, with financial help to help rebuild. You know, rebuilding in these communities is hard. It costs a lot of money. There's going to be remediation work that's going to be needed. Uh, there's going to be a lot of infrastructure work that's going to be needed, uh, repairing, uh, you know, long-term power lines and, and buildings and things like that that were destroyed by fire. You know, we had hundreds of buildings lost in British Columbia mm -hmm. uh, during that uh, stretch at the end of August. And so it's about the short-term financial need and knowing Ottawa's at the table there with money, but also 
uh, as you alluded to, a, a greater strategy uh, Canada-wide to help support uh, some of this stuff long-term as we see these events more and more frequently. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We were talking about Premier David Eby's and six of his cabinet ministers heading to Ottawa today to meet with federal policy makers, and they're going to discuss a variety of issues from housing, wildfires, and floods, of course. Uh, but uh, one of the things I'm sure Premier Eby and all his cabinet and caucus members are fully aware of, of course, is on October 3rd, the fall legislative session begins here at uh, the BC uh, BC legislature. A lot of issues on the table, lots going on, and very different look of the legislature as well. Richard, let's start there. What can we expect from the BC Conservatives? Uh, to my understanding, they've got official party recognition, so there will be, uh, I guess, a higher profile for them in the legislature come question period. Yeah, so we haven't heard yet from the speaker what question period looks like, but I have a sense of what we're going to get, uh, which is every day you will hear questions from the Conservative Party of BC and the Greens, as well as BC United. So that fundamentally changes the dynamics in the House. We also know, based on a meeting on Friday, that the Legislative Assembly Management Committee has voted to give the Conservatives, in essence, the same sort of financial support as the Greens, so they can have a full staff, uh, that leads to research. It will lead to, you know, bringing up different types of questions in the in question period. Uh, BC United is not going to be happy with the situation, considering uh, they're going to be giving up uh, in semblance one question a day for the Conservatives to be able to ask. I also understand the Speaker is working very hard to ensure that questions stay tight. You know, sometimes in the legislature that's challenging. Uh, you get on a train of thought and it's hard to stop yourself. Uh, but we will see how tight a ship the speaker can run. But we're now getting this, you know, three different parties asking every day. And it's going to lead to some very interesting debate and, and, and issues that we haven't heard a lot of in the legislature brought up uh, will be brought up on a daily basis. Yeah, I find it interesting. Uh, unlike the federal parliament, our questions from our, our, our provincial politicians are very, generally very long-winded. I've always felt 45 seconds <laughs> should be the max and just get your question out and get on with it. But sometimes the preamble, these questions can easily go two minutes and it's war and peace. And when you only have a 30-minute set time limit for question period, the tighter the questions, the more questions you can get in. But uh, uh, let's just see if uh, they start following that rule. So let's go to the other issue. What can we expect in regards to legislation being introduced by the provincial government? What's the big stuff uh, come come this fall? I laugh so hard, Jess, because you're famous for being brief, right? You, you I was, never... to the point, <laughs> and, and I get there, and I get to the but point, you, I was you pointed. Have a lot, you have a lot to get off your, your chest as well <laughs> at times. But yes, pointed questions are good. Uh, I'm not sure that... Uh, the idea of being brief is something people relate with Jazz Johal. But in question period, I will give you that. Um, in terms of legislation, it's going to be an interesting session for legislation. We know there's really significant uh, legislation coming when it comes to the issues around decriminalization. The province continues to review uh, how decriminalization is working. And uh, they have promised legislation that will expand areas where open drug use uh, is not allowed. So that is likely to include places like beaches and libraries and community centers. Uh, it will be part of a larger conversation around the issue of decriminalization and uh, support for mental health uh, issues in the province. We also are going to get uh, substantial housing legislation. There will be a number of pieces of legislation. We're starting to see that roll out this week in terms of setting up the, legislat the legislative session uh, Housing Minister and House Leader Ravi Kalon in Saanich tomorrow afternoon. Uh, it is billed 
as a press conference about housing targets. We know that legislation in the fall set out that every every municipality, the, the top 10 list, will have to build a certain amount of housing. And we're going to get a better sense of what that looks like, what the targets are, how does that work per capita, what will that will mean for different regions. We'll get some of that information tomorrow. And then the province is going to build on all of that through housing legislation uh, in uh, this session. So it's going to be a, a jam-packed session. Mm-hmm. Uh, there likely is also going to be some health-related legislation. We're running out of time. It's hard to say. Like It's, it's weird to say because we're a little bit more than a year out from the next provincial election. Mm-hmm. But this session really is an important time to power home some of those key legislative pieces Then we come back in the spring with that election budget in February, building towards implementing some of that. And then we go to summer of 2024 and now we're on the campaign trail. So it's it's going to be this is going to be a really fascinating session uh, in terms of um, the NDP executing on some of those promises that they've made. Do you still think it's going to be a a fall 2024 election? Can you see Premier Eby wanting to pull the plug uh, as early as spring? I've always said, Jazz, Premier David Eby keeps insisting there's going to be a fall election, but so does his wife. And I tend to believe the wives of politicians. I think David <laughs> Eby waited for a long, long time to have this opportunity to be the premier. And now he's implementing those things as premier. And yes, things may look good in the polls right now, but I, I don't see a situation where he decides to go early. Okay. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's lots of pressure. They're doing very well in the polls. But uh, and, and just to confirm, the new, the new seats that um, will be added to the legislature, those will be implemented during the next election. But to my understanding, B.C., Elections BC is ready to go any time after January in regards to being able to, I guess, deal with the any election that's called after that because of the changes to to the um, to the boundaries. Yeah, and it doesn't really change the lay of the land. Uh, but yes, it's important that based on the work from the Electoral Boundaries Commission that you know all British Columbians feel in some semblance uh, proportionally represented here because ridings in uh, Surrey and here in Victoria, especially in Langford and in Vancouver, are growing very fast in, in Langley. And that's leading to, in some cases, you know, large, large ridings compared to much smaller rural ones. So I think it's important whenever the next election is contested that it's under those new boundaries with 93 ridings instead of 87. And you're right. If we have a spring or fall election, it will be using those new boundaries. Absolutely. Richard, thanks for your time. My pleasure as always, notice Jazz. A, no, notice how brief I was there? Colleagues. Notice yeah, yeah, how brief your, I was there? your expertise. That's your expertise. <laughs> there you go. That's Richard Zussman. Thanks. That's Richard Zussman, <laughs> Global PC's legislative reporter. The RCMP uh, say racist signs that were reportedly advertising a whites-only moms and tots group is now under investigation. Uh, the city of Coquitlam says it's aware uh, of these signs and, of course, uh, the uh, signs themselves are contrary to community values. Uh, Port Coquitlam's mayor has also spoke out about the issue as well. Uh, according to um, a social media post by a group calling itself Black Vancouver, on Sunday, September 24th, uh, they um, uh, highlighted the fact there was a sign advertising a whites-only playgroup, and that sign was spotted in the 2600 block of Shaughnessy Street uh, at a bus stop. The post on, on Instagram generated many comments, of course, and the sign also asked people to, that were interested in the group to contact, contact them via email 
and a Telegram account. Now, Telegram is an app that uh, protects your identity. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, this, uh, these signs that were up in the Port Coquitlam and Coquitlam area is Angela Marie McDougall. She's an activist and co-writer of the report, The Colors of Violence, Gender, Race, and Anti-Violence Services. Angela, thank you for joining us today. Hi, hey, Jess. Hi. You know, I saw the um, these uh, the signs yesterday. A friend of okay. mine sent them to me, and I ended up reposting them. I got the pictures, and I posted them up on Twitter. And I was mm-hmm. hesitant in a bit, and I said, don't give this stuff attention at the same time. Mm-hmm. Part of me was thinking, look, if you don't talk about it, if you're not addressing this, what's the point? Right. Uh, perhaps I was wrong. Perhaps I was right. I don't know. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about it, uh, most importantly. Your thoughts on 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 all of this uh, that's transpired over the last 24 hours? Well, it's been a it's been a, uh, a heck of a week, I think, with Nazis in the House of Commons and, <laughs> and whites only uh, mom and kids groups. Uh, this is a really important time for us to take a moment and to reflect on what's what's happening within the culture. And we're in this uh, uh, big transition as, um, you know, as a community here in Canada, as we are reckoning with the historical uh, underpinnings of the making of Canada and those, uh, ki- those dynamics that uh, privilege some over others in the making of the nation. And what that means in a, cont- in a com- contemporary moment as we are uh, uh, really starting to reckon with racism mm-hmm. and uh, history, the roots, uh, both in legal traditions, but also within the communities and socially. Yeah. How much time should we give something like this? I mean, we did talk about it today, even on this show. I said, we cover it. Right. Uh, I said, look, I pushed it out. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of interest when I pushed it out on my own yeah. Twitter account and uh, the others, that other folks that have done. Um, it, it, so in, based on your comments, is, yeah. is this really about Vancouver's demographics changing in a significant way. We always talk about multi-ethnic Vancouver, the changing face mm-hmm. of Vancouver. Let's face it, it's changed. We're 52% of us are now people of color. Yeah. It's multi-ethnic. Is that at its core the underpinning in your mind that is uh, scaring people? That's it. I mean, I think we're having a shift in, in what has been historic power dynamics, uh, at least in, in terms of representation. And, you know, I think that this is uh, an opportunity for the Tri-Cities uh, as one community to reckon with uh, what's happened here and to engage the people. I know that the RCMP have been deployed. I don't know that the police is the way to go. I think that city staff could be the way to go. And especially because we see that the Tri-Cities, you know, have taken efforts to build in an anti-racism framework within their municipal uh, kind of apparatus. I think that this would be a time to engage those folks and and that and to talk with them and to what we don't want and this is partly why this moment is uh, we should be paying attention to is you know is to allow uh, whatever is uh, you know kind of seizing there for that group uh, to um, fester mm-hmm. and that it needs to be aired but more than social media the people should be engaged and they should have a conversation and and to find out like what you know what is what is it that they think that they're losing uh, right now with the addition of children and families of color in their communities, mm-hmm. uh, knowing, of course, that Canada, you know, is a country that was based on colonization, where, you know, we're all, unless we are Indigenous people, we're all immigrants and descendants of immigrants. So, uh, in, the, in the very making of the country, so you know, this, uh, this, you know, is a long historical uh, piece, and this power shift is what's in in play here, and people are nervous about what it means to. Um, what it means to not have, uh, let's say, a white-only, white uh, majority 
within a community. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the broader debate of immigration, which I think that's a real good debate, and we used to debate whether or not 225,000 people coming to this country was appropriate. Now we're almost at half half a million by 2025, and then you added PR. That's over a million. You talk about international students. And, you know, when you look at the debate, my, my worry's always been, don't take some of the legislation that government's brought in. Yes, there has been challenges. There have been challenges in regards to letting so many international students in. Uh, but don't you let give people the opportunity to use that uh, to be anti-immigrant because we are a country of immigrants. You just have to be smarter yeah. about that, number one. But how much of this that you think is just being driven by the broader political climate? You know, obviously, politics you know, works and lives downstream from culture, whether it's here in Canada or the wacky politics of America over the last few years. How much mm-hmm. of that just do you think has just opened all of this up and said, you know, it's okay to put stuff like this up, it's okay to talk like this. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it seems like polarization and polarized politics has also said, you know what, it's okay to, to talk about all this stuff, and it's, it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, but I think we have to go back, just to get to where we are now, we have to go back and recognize that anti-immigrant sentiment didn't start with people of color coming no. to Canada. It started even with Eastern Europeans. It started with, you know, if your name wasn't from English or, or French, you know, you would have a hard time getting a job in Canada, you know, leading up to where we are today. Anti-immigrant sentiment has been, you know, there for some time. Now it has, you know, race, race and and, and racialization becomes a part of that anti-immigrant sentiment for sure. And, And we really have to look at what we've gone through over the last three years or four years where we had you know, a global reckoning uh, through the killing of George Floyd and, you know, where communities all around the world were, were pointing out, you know, colonization and enslavement of Africans and, you know, and, and, and colonization all around the world uh, and, and, you know, and the impact that it had on communities and, and what it did in terms of genocide uh, and then what that's meant for successive people and, and what that means even in terms of migration. So, <laughs> you know, I think that there is uh, a backlash to this reckoning, certainly, and that's what the Mom and Top Club is, uh, you know, is, represents. Uh, but this really is an opportunity, and I would hate for us to just be focusing on what the RCMP can do here. And I really hope that this, that the, you know, the Tri Cities community leaders will actually uh, seek to engage these folks and to be able to speak with them yep. and to uh, understand what's what's going on for them and to help them, uh, you know, actually integrate into what is emerging as a, you know, as a more, you know, racially expansive space here in British Columbia and Canada. Mm-hmm. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. That is Angela Marie McDougall. She's an activist and co-writer of the report, The Colors of Violence, Gender, Race and Anti-Violence uh, Services. Let's talk about e-scooters, e-bikes. They're all over uh, the Metro Vancouver area, of course. Uh, And of course, uh, the City of Vancouver Police uh, are obviously trying to educate uh, those who use these these electric scooters in regards to speed, in regards to what the rules are, wearing a helmet, of course, uh, all of that. Uh, Daniel Fontaine, a new Westminster City Councillor, said with the rapid pace of adoption of electric scooters, 
scooters and bikes, we need to start talking about perhaps imposing a speed limit for uh, for residents. Uh, all I have to do is walk outside after this show. Uh, generally, when I walk out, I go walk over towards uh, the art gallery, and you're always seeing uh, these e-scooters and bikes whizzing by, and generally people are following the rules, uh, and, you know, traveling at a reasonable rate. Uh, but you also see folks that are just whizzing right by in a very, you know, tight, tightly packed area where you have lots of people milling about, in this case, the art gallery. Uh, and you also see streets that here in Vancouver where they, a lot of people on e-scooters e- e- shouldn't be on, but they are on. Uh, so the Vancouver police say that at this point they're educating folks uh, to, and eventually, hopefully, the message does get across. But Daniel Fontaine, a new Westminster councillor, says, let's talk about uh, starting a pilot project to test and monitor the speed limit. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, e-scooters and many other personalized electrical electric vehicles is Meyer Saidi. He's founder of eSkate, the official personalized electric vehicle uh, community for Vancouver. Meyer, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jazz. And just to confirm, it's Vancouver eSkate, which is uh, Vancouver eSkate. Okay, yeah. Vancouver eSkate. Yes. All right. Well, let's start from there. First and foremost, um, what's it like out there now when it comes to personalized electric vehicles? Uh, what do you use yourself? So I ride an electric longboard, which is essentially just an electric skateboard. But our group members include people who ride electric unicycles, electric scooters, electric bikes. Uh, So we're all kind of wrapped up in this one category, but we do all ride different devices. You do. And what's it like out there right now? Uh, Well, as far as laws go, it's kind of a gray area. Uh, You know, we know on our end that legally most of our devices, they're not allowed to be, you know, ridden on the roads. Uh, you know, we get ticketed sometimes, I'm not going to say all the time, uh, for lack of having insurance. But mainly from the community on our end, we want those laws to be put in place so that we can ride freely. Um, and that's like our main goal right now is to just get awareness out there mm-hmm. and try to find ways to add laws so that we know where and when we can ride. And our community is all about that. Like, we, we're we just advocating the fact that we want these laws to be put in place so that we can ride freely and know exactly what laws are, you know, corresponding to our PEVs. The problem is, though, that all these different municipalities and cities are starting different pilot programs. Mm-hmm. So when we're crossing from, let's say, Coquitlam to New West, we have different rules and regulations to deal with. So what we're hoping for is something that's more across the province, so province-wide regulations. So we know what the laws are, depending on all the cities we're going through. Now, right now, the province cap speeds for electric scooters at about 24 kilometers per hour. Is that a good speed, do you think? Fair? Um, I mean, some people will argue that it's not. Others might argue that it is. Uh, On my end, I think about 30 kilometers an hour is is fair. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I think this is something that needs to just be tested. So although I'm happy with the pilot program that New West is proposing, I think that this has to be beyond New West just Mm -hmm. proposing that. I think a lot of the other cities got to get involved. We're seeing the program in Coquitlam with the e-scooters and the e-bikes, which stems even another problem of the general public using these things and not knowing etiquette, right? So. Some of the problem is from our community, but the other side of the problem is the community that's just getting into these things and don't really know the etiquette behind the devices that they're riding. I, I use the example of the art gallery. Our office is, record, uh, is located right next to it. 
And like I said, people whizzing by in bike lanes, designated bike lanes, don't bother me. I got to follow the rules. They follow the rules. Although sometimes occasionally I think I see people going a lot faster than I think they probably should, but but they're in the bike lane. It's the folks that are sort of at the art gallery uh, steps or near the steps just whizzing by you in the plaza area there and lots of people milling about. There's food trucks everywhere. I kind of get very concerned. You have to be very much uh, aware of things. It's not people going through that's the issue. It's people speeding by and I kind of go, you know, what that's probably not the speed you should be going at because you don't know who's going to walk in front of you or be near you and i think you raise a very good very good point there um so you think that this just needs to be a metro vancouver rule let's get on with it let's figure it out and it's not just the speed it's etiquette as well right in regards to where you can ride uh and when you can ride as well yeah definitely and that even stems across the board to you know having even the same principles of driving, right? If you shoulder check, mm-hmm. uh, things like that, have respect for people on the sidewalk and on the streets ahead of you. And most of these riders do do those things, but there are the odd people that just don't know. Uh, but on our end, yeah, if we see laws and regulations that are province-wide, then everyone's on the same page or at least can be educated to be on the same page. And eventually things will kind of even out, right? Yeah. But until then, you know, as new riders start riding, as these cities have these e-scooters that are free to use for the public, uh, these new riders are going to get on and they're not really going to consider etiquette or proper responsible riding, I should say. Do you, um, do you think bike lane infrastructure is there? Uh, and, and we used to oh, debate definitely. bike lanes, or do you think we need more of it? Because bikes are one, traditional bikes for one thing, add e-bikes, e-scooters, other types of personalized electric vehicles, like you say, yours is a longboard. It almost looks like to me that we're heading into an era where you're going to have rush hour on these lanes and it's going to be almost too many of them. Yeah, that's true. And this is where riding on the roads, you know, should become applicable in some cases, right? But Mm -hmm. that's something I believe that we will have to tackle down the road. Vancouver, compared to other cities that provide PEVs or have PEV communities, we're really lucky to have so many bike lanes of course that depends on which city you're in mm-hmm. but in the Van- vancouver downtown core i feel like we do have a bunch of networks a lot of bike lanes that do accommodate for us and for the capacity of e-rides and you know the different pev riders that are out there now now will that be sustainable for the future um, i can say that our group has seen rapid growth especially in the past few years you know we've gone from being a group of a few hundred people that maybe get together and have 50 members join up for a group ride to suddenly we have over 100 members joining up for the group rides and you know our group has increased to 1400 members on facebook over the course of the past couple years so seeing the growth in the community does that sort of tie into the amount of bike lanes we have and the infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Eventually that will catch up for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, I don't foresee it being a problem. Right now, the biggest issue is getting, you know, getting these laws in place, uh, making sure that we're talking to these PEV riders about the infrastructure and about the different laws and regulations that should correlate, mm-hmm. but also uh, providing education to the general public who is starting to ride on these uh, devices, but also who haven't even been on one. Yeah. Mayor, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on again, because I don't think this issue is going right of going away anytime soon, considering that uh, we you know, have 21 municipalities, they have different perspectives on so many other issues. They still haven't coalesced around uh, personalized electric vehicles either. So thank you. For, thank you for your time.
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And definitely, I would definitely love to come back on again and discuss this matter further. You go to any community in Metro Vancouver, you see tattoo parlors everywhere. In fact, you know, getting tattoos is nothing new. In fact, uh, I think it's probably picked up in popularity over the last 15 years or so. Well, Councillor Barb Martins from the Township of Langley recently um, uh, brought up the issue that uh, her community uh, has an outright ban on tattoo shops operating there. But as of tonight, that's about to change. Joining me now is Barb Martins, Township of Langley. Councillor Barb. Barb, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I guess the first question to ask here, why was there a ban on tattoo shops in Langley Township? Right. Uh, So my understanding is this is an age-old ban. Um, Back in the day when uh, uh, tattoo shops and uh, pool halls um, were usually hubs for nefarious activity that um, maybe attracted not a great element of society, and we're talking, you know, in the last century, middle of the last century at some point, and it's just a holdover from uh, that era. So tattoos represented bikers and uh, nefarious types, a stereotype. Exactly. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, as a counselor, uh, how did you decide this? Uh, first of all, sort of, you've got a million one issues in any community as a city councillor. How did you come about this particular issue uh, in regards and how did it catch your eye? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. So it's really interesting. So I'm a first-term counsellor and finding my way along in here. And uh, one of the things I really enjoy about this job is that people um, reach out to us um, with issues and concerns and questions. And um, I love meeting with people and seeing what I can do with the tools I've got before me um, to improve uh, situations. And that's how this one came about. Um, There was um, an esthetician a trained esthetician that uh, wanted to uh, license an aesthetics business in the township, mm-hmm. um, specifically doing microblading. Um, and uh, she couldn't because a microblading actually fell into the definition of um, tattooing, um, of the permanent ink or ink being deposited below the surface of the skin. Mm-hmm. So technically, it was not allowed anywhere in the township, and that's a very common practice, um, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and her concern was doing it legitimately because she actually wanted to donate 25% of her time and provide a free service to uh, people uh, impacted by um, uh, medical treatments such as um, chemotherapy, uh, where people lose their hair hmm. um, and lose a sense of who they are. And um, she, she thought this was a way she could give back to people you know, going through a pretty difficult time in their lives um, with the skill that she had. Um, so they can wake up in the morning look in the mirror and feel pseudo-normal. Um, and uh, I heard that story and I thought, you know what? That is a really good reason for us to take a look at this and see what we can do. Hmm. And that's how it all started. Uh, so uh, moving forward, do you see more tattoo shops opening up in Langley Township or perhaps an aesthetics business? Yeah, um, I think we will find um, aesthetics businesses in particular, coming out of the dark, uh, now that they are legitimately allowed to um, conduct certain um, services that they likely already are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if we'll see a big increase in that industry, um, but legitimizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for tattoo shops, yeah, I haven't personally had anyone reach out to me interested in doing it, um, but it sh- certainly opens up that opportunity. And frankly, we've come a long way from the um, nefarious 
pool halls and tattoo parlors. <laughs> uh, you know, I think more people nowadays have tattoos than don't. Um, and there are health standards in place, um, and it's a very legitimate business. Um, and really, we're just, it, it, this was an opportunity to bring this one bylaw, you know, back in, back, Back to the times is yeah. uh, what we're trying to do here. Well, so. one would argue there's so many tattoos out there, probably a proliferation of tattoo removal businesses one day as well. So uh, <laughs> There we go. There you go. So for uh, those looking for a new business, that might be something to consider, <laughs> that's right? right? Well, hopefully this interview helps with a few more business uh, licenses uh, uh, potentially coming in or people asking for businesses licenses at the Township of Langley. I'm just curious, though. Uh, next door, Langley City, do they have, do they, they allow tattoos? They do. They have um, a, their bylaw, though, restricts, I think, the distance between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want to end up with, I guess, a, a tattoo district, yep. shall we say. Um, and, and I appreciate that because they're, you know, they're a very small geographical location with a lot going on in close proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we don't have that sort of a concern here in the township. Uh, so, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, it's something we'll have to keep an eye on and see if, you know, as these things roll out, maybe there needs to be adjustments made, um, but I don't foresee that. Uh, has there been anybody uh, that, and I'm not looking for specific names, but has there been any opposition to say, look, leave the leave the uh, ban in place. We like it just the way it is. There's plenty of tattoo shops in neighboring municipalities. We don't need them in in uh, in, in Langley Township. Yeah, there. Um, initially, when this came forward to council, there was one person. So it was really more just questioning, why are we doing this now? Uh, I haven't heard any opposition to, you know, the spirit of the intent, um, just the timing of it. Uh, Ms. Martins, thanks so much. And just to confirm, uh, that's going to be voted on at tonight's council then? It sure is. It's um, first, second, third, and final reading uh, will be happening um, this afternoon's council meeting. So if anybody wants to open up a tattoo parlor as of tomorrow, you can go to Langley Township <laughs> uh, City Hall to, to ask for a license. If that is the will of all council, you betcha. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Martin, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful day. And you as well. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.